0: Welcome to the live stream of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen. I am the lead pastor and we are glad you're here. It is June 14th. Today we will be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, living your best life, the golden rule. Before we do that, um, each week we've been trying to incorporate elements of worship. Samuel did a great job last week if you didn't see last week's sermon. And so this morning I thought I would open up with a sort of call together uh, from Micah and then I will pray. And then we'll do a confession of sin. And then after that, we'll jump right into the Sermon on the Mount. So hear this call. Uh, Micah says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we gather, even now, virtually, as people are in their homes, as people are with maybe some members of their community group, that you would come and you would bless this time, that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that you would uh, use everything that that we hear and discuss this morning, uh, for the sake of both uh, the, the justification and in sanctification of individuals, and uh, just ensuring them in their faith, in Christ's name we pray. Amen, and amen. So, for a confession of sin this morning, uh, you should see it in the comment section or near the comment section. This confession of sin, just to give you some insight into how I work, is. For years, I both read through the Bible during the year, but also uh, most years I'm, I'm reading something from Charles Spurgeon, either morning and evening or Faith's Checkbook. And often his devotionals are so like compelling that I take them and sort of make them into confessions. And so this morning's confession is actually uh, adapted from one of Spurgeon's morning uh, devotionals. And so, if you want to, if you're if you're at home and you want to pray along with me, you can. Um, Otherwise, just uh, listen up. So here's the confession of sin. Dear Lord, our proud hearts are anxious to have a hand in our own justification. Good works are offered up. False humility and repentance is trusted in and our natural abilities are vaunted. We would do well to remember that so far from perfecting our Savior's work of atonement, our confidence in the flesh only pollutes and dishonors it forgive us for seeking to add that which jesus declared to be finished or to improve upon that which the father is satisfied amen and amen now if you'd like to pause and silently confess your sins you're welcome to do that i imagine some of you need a longer pause than others <laughs> but with that said i will say now uh, if you have confessed your sins unto jesus know that he is faithful and just to forgive them And he will not only forgive your sins, but he takes them and casts them as far as the east is from the west. So if you've confessed your sins unto Jesus, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen, amen. So this morning, we're getting toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, today's teaching is the very last teaching part, right? There's sort of two bookends that that are sort of more exhortations on the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have this middle teaching section, and, and this is the last portion of the teaching section we've got a few more weeks in the sermon on the mount and then i'm excited because in the future like starting in july i think um samuel and i are going to be preaching through the whole bible starting in july for about a year and we're going to be following the text in the jesus storybook bible and we'll be getting information to you so it'll be fun so let me read to you today's text and we will begin so the text is this it's in verse 12 of chapter 7 matthew So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For those that enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Amen and amen. So let me start by asking you this question. And it's a question, if you'd have asked me this question, four years ago, I would have laughed in your face, to be honest with you. Um, but I've actually come to, to to embrace this. So the question this morning is this, what is your love language? Have you ever thought about that? What What is your love language? And so let me tell you, there are five love languages. I think a guy named Gary Chapman came up with these. Um, and these are the love languages in the order that they come up when I am tested for them. So these, this there's no particular order, but these are mine. Uh, number one, acts of service. Number two is quality time. Number three is gifts. Number four is words of encouragement. And number five is touch. In other words, those are five different ways that people want to receive love, right? So, so it apparently, right, according to these tests, when when Judy does, my wife does acts of service, I experience that as love. That's how I do it. Now, what's interesting also is that the way we show love is the same way we wanna receive love. And so I remember when, when this all came up a few years ago and someone said, oh, you ought to test for that. And, and I tested and I, it didn't surprise me, to be honest with you, because like the last thing, it's like, if you love me, don't touch me, <laughs> right? That's, that's number five for me. Um, but the fact is, is, is as soon as I said my love language is acts of service, one of my daughters said, Oh, that's why you're always doing things for us. And that's that's true, right? And so why is it important to know your love language? Why is it important to know how you love? And the answer is just this, is because you, you can't really love others well unless you understand yourself well. In other, in other words, loving others well actually requires some level of self-awareness. And the question is, do you have that self-awareness do you understand yourself well enough to to start to begin to understand others so for example um as a pastor it's really helped me because i've noticed so for example my love language is acts of service that's what i'm going to do for people if i love them just intuitively but if i find if i see someone like a staff person or someone in church and they're constantly giving me words of encouragement now, now for me, I, I, I'm thankful for that. But what now happens is I think that person is showing me love that way because that's the way they receive love. And so that's what I try and do for that person. I start trying to give them words of encouragement because that's, they're doing that to me, they're signaling that. So all that to say, um, it's interesting that the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount And get this the culmination in some ways of the whole Bible comes boils down to this treat other people the way that you would want to be treated right in fact that's the the new American standard Bible that's why I used to preach from verse 12 where it says so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets Um, just a more literal translation of that is however you want to be treated treat other people that way and so um, what's interesting too, this is the last section of the teaching and it forms a bookend. Do you remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says this, he said, don't, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if you want to go back, you can watch that sermon. But the bottom line is Jesus basically said, if you want to understand the whole Bible, you need to, Look at me, that I'm, I'm the key to understanding everything because the whole Bible, all of the law, all of the prophets point to me. So if you want to understand the law and the prophets, you got to go to Jesus. Now, what Jesus is going to say at the end here is if you want to understand it, you have to, you, you have to know Jesus. If you want to obey it, you need to know the golden rule, right? Because that's what he says today. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So if you want to know how to obey the law and the prophets, treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Pretty simple, right? Maybe not so much. So we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at the golden rule, right? Verse 12, but we're also going to look at the hope of narrowness. It really is an interesting thing that that Jesus goes from the golden rule to enter by the narrow gate right a lot of people think that it's just random i don't think it is random um, so considering the golden rule so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets basically there are two ways that you can teach the torah the old testament and the first way it was the most common in jesus day and basically the, the what you would do there is you multiply laws so as to cover every situation And what do do we mean by that? So I I thought I would pull for you. So if you consider the 10 commandments, they seem pretty simple on their face, right? And so think about the Sabbath commandment, right? Exodus 20, I think it's verse eight, says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Pretty simple, right? And then it says after that, basically, six days you shall do your labor, and one day you shall rest. That's it. Now the rabbis, wanted to make sure that people understood what it meant to do no labor on the Sabbath. And so what they did was they multiplied the law. They came up with 39 different categories to cover the kinds of things that needed to be avoided on the Sabbath. And I'm just gonna read through the categories really fast. And then I'm gonna give you like one example of a category. So these are categories. These aren't the actual things. Under each category is also a list of specific things but the categories would be um, the order of bread, planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, extraction, winnowing, sorting, dissection, sifting, kneading, cooking, baking, the order of garments, shearing, scouring, uh, carding, combing wool, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two loops, threading heddles, whatever that is, um, weaving, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping, killing, flaying, curing, smoothing, scoring, measured, cutting, writing, erasing, construction, demolition, extinguishing a fire, ignition, final completion, fine tuning, perfection, transferring between domains. So when you look at the last thing, what what does perfection mean? That's like at the end, that means like, let's say if you come out to your your table on Sunday morning and the newspaper's on the table, and, and it looks like it's out of whack and you just sort of want to put the newspaper, you can't do that, not allowed. I looked up, I was reading these and like, so for example, reaping. If I ask you, what do you think they mean by reaping? Here's what it says. The, so the definition of reaping um, is to sever a plant from its source of growth. And then it goes on, removing all or part of a plant from its source of, source of growth, This reaping. Climbing a tree is rabbinically forbidden for fear that this may lead to tearing off a branch. Riding an animal is also rabbinically forbidden as one may unthinkingly detach a stick with which to hit hit an animal. So you could see how laws just can multiply. And honestly, I would have never personally connected reaping with riding an animal. And yet they multiplied it. Now what's interesting is the rabbis thought they were doing people a favor, right? They thought they were doing people a favor by making the law more doable. They're like, well, people obviously want to obey the law so we'll give them all the things they have to do so they'll know, they, they, they wanted them to know. Now the problem is, is when you multiply the law like that, you end up either doing one of two things. One, you end up making people righteous, self-righteous because they think they, they now have a scorecard and they can judge themselves according to other people. And I say, oh, I've done 36 of the categories this week and Samuel's only done like one, right? That's how that works. Um, on the other hand it can make people despair because if you told i mean i look at that right now and i despair it's like obey the sabbath and keep it holy okay tommy here's 39 categories and under each category there's 10 or 15 things that you got to make sure you don't screw up or you or toast and i would just go well then i this i don't have what it takes this isn't for me and so you could see how multiplying the law actually would have the exact opposite effect of people doing it or as we've been looking at the Sermon on Mount, it just makes people hypocrites. Because what they're doing is they're actually doing these things just so that people can see them and not because they really care about it. You know, I was on a flight this week. Um, well, last week I drove my daughter Flannery from Seattle to Alabama and I flew back from Nashville. And of course, coming back from on an airplane, um, I flew out, I'm not gonna name the airline, named after a state rhymes with Nebraska, but they made the big deal about how you have to wear a mask on the plane. I mean, it was like every step of the way, do you have a mask? 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 And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Of course, everyone hates wearing masks. I hate wearing masks. I got on the plane and I was in an exit row and the person on the aisle of the exit row was a female crew member who was just catching a flight back. In other words, she worked for this airline and while we were getting on the plane, her mask was down around her chin. It, I mean, she she, she she had it on, but it clearly wasn't covering anything. Now, what did I do? Raise my hand, rat her out. Hey, up, up, up. of course I didn't do that. You know what I did? I took my mask off because I thought, who's she gonna tell, right? You see, the, the by just being a hypocrite, she didn't do anything for the law. And I certainly was led astray. So now I'm gonna, next time I go out, I will repent and wear my mask all the way. You get my point though, is multiplying the law is not particularly helpful. So one way to deal with the Torah is to multiply it. The other way is to reduce it to its essence. And that's what Jesus does here. In other words, you can you can, you can can multiply it, which makes it ultimately undoable, which ultimately puts you in danger of being a hypocrite, which ultimately puts you in danger of being self-righteous, or you can boil it down to its essence. And when you boil it down to its essence, like Jesus does here, what he does is he makes the law more doable, he makes it more understandable, and he makes it more applicable to every area of life. I mean, think about if your job, as a rabbi was to sit around making up laws and and making sure people obeyed laws and then this guy Jesus comes along and he says oh here's the deal just treat other people like you want to be treated (laughs) seriously (laughs) like that's it yes Uh, I mean the bottom line is just that this principle that Jesus gives us about um, treating other people the way that we want to be treated is so important the apostle Paul uses it three times he uses it in Romans 13, uh, 9 and 10. He uses it in Galatians 5, 4. Listen to what Paul says. Let me, I'll read verse 8, 2 in verse Romans 13. He says, O oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Now, what does he say in Galatians? He says this. In Galatians, he says, verse 14, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is pretty radical on honestly. And you know why it's so radical? And you know why it's so applicable to our day and age? All of those places where Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. The problem that he was dealing with was racism. Think about that, right? Jews and Gentiles not getting along, Jews thinking they were superior to Gentiles on the basis of their race, on the basis of their religion, all of these things. And Paul says to both of those groups of people, Jew and Gentile, The law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Now, by the way, you should probably add on the end of that to to make it more understandable for us in English. Treat other people the way you want to be treated if you were them. Let me give you three. I I came up basically with three, um, three ways that we can apply this or three ways of application. The first thing that's necessary to apply this principle this treat others as you want to be treated is the principle of empathy right are you an empathetic person right isn't this weird like we're talking about the law and yet suddenly we're almost into like psychology and yet if you are not empathetic you cannot love your neighbor if you're not empathetic you can't treat someone the way you want to be treated because you can't get inside their life in their head you know i remember it was a few years ago I went to Fred Meyer and I went you know I went through the line and I had about $14 worth of stuff. Let's call it 15 just to, to make the math easy. And I went through the line and I'm standing there and the the there's a young girl and she was chit-chatting with another cashier the whole time she was ringing me out and she said that'll be $15 or whatever and I handed her 20 and I watched her she picked up the drawer that they have and put the 20 under there. I've been a cashier. That's where you put big bills. And she went in her till and she gave me $85. So I gave her 20 and she gave me $85 change. And I stopped her and I said, you know, you gave me like $70 or, you know, $80 too much here. And she's like, oh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. And I said, no, seriously, you gave me too much money. And I had to fight her. I said, lift up your drawer. And she lifted up her drawer and there was a 20 there. And she started crying. Why? Well, she started crying because if she'd have shown up to her manager at the end of the shift and been $80 short, she would have been in a lot of trouble. And then she started saying, oh, you're such a good person. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And I told her, I'm actually not that great a person but I know what it's like to be a cashier and that responsibility. And I didn't want you to have to go through that. In other words, it was my empathy that drove me to love her. And so the question is, do you have empathy for other people? Can you get, can can you actually think about, gosh, what would it be like to be them? You can't obey the golden rule unless you have some level of empathy. The other thing that, that basically is, is required, or it certainly makes it easier, is um, the requirement of a relationship. Right? It, I mean, it's interesting that um, basically the more time you spend with somebody, the more you understand who they are, and the more you understand who they are, the more you can think through, what how would I want to be treated if I were them? And the, the, the obvious principle, the obvious application, at least with what we're going through now in our country, uh, with, with all the racial turmoil and what have you, is just this, if, if you are a white person and you are concerned about racism and you are concerned about how uh, black brothers and sisters are treated, do you have any black friends? Do you pursue those kinds of relationships? And f- frankly, the same could be said of, of black people or Asian people, right? Are you pursuing relationships with people who are different than you? Because the extent to which you are pursuing relationships with people who are different than you, the more you can understand what their life is like and the more you can treat them the way they wanna be treated if you were them. So do you have empathy? Do you have relationships? And I think the biggest thing, by the way, is is of the three things I'm gonna give you is the last one. And it's the requirement of imagination right i'm amazed at how often the 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 church or people in the church and by church i mean church catholic but also our church we just most how many of our problems boil down to a lack of imagination what do i mean by that um, you can't be in relationship with everybody in the, in the whole world, and so when you bump into someone that you don't know, um, you've got to use your imagination as to what it would be like to treat them as they would want to be, as I would want to be treated if I were them. And I made this huge list, I probably won't go through all of them, but um, I think about just myself. So I'm a, I'm a white guy, I grew up in a blue collar household, I joined the army to pay for college, uh paper college, you know, ended up going to seminary, ultimately working three jobs. And ultimately, you know, just got my doctor of ministry. So I've done a lot. I would hope people would judge me according to the content of my character, not the color of my skin, maybe judge me according to my um, achievements and whether or not I, I've loved my family, all, all these things. And so now let's say I meet a black guy, that I, a, a middle-class black man that I that I've never met before. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think he might also want to be judged by his character and not the color of his skin. He might also want to be judged according to his achievements and, and, and not anything else. He might also want to be judged according to whether or not he loves his family. That that doesn't take a lot of imagination. Now where it does take more imagination is, is imagine, I was thinking this morning even that you know 50% of the kids in in at least in my community in Kent, Washington, are raised by single parents, almost almost exclusively by mothers. So single mothers raise 50% of the, of the kids in our community, and so I, let's say I bump into a single mother or a single mother comes to our, our church looking for help. I have I'm I'm a father, right? And I'm a, I'm a white guy. And, and let's say an African American or Hispanic single mother, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what how would she like to be treated if I were in her shoes? Would she like to be treated with dignity? Would she like to be treated with respect? Would she like to be treated with empathy? Would she like to be treated with kindness? Maybe, and, and I could even go a little further and imagine she might like some help with her children. She might need help watching them. She might need Um, financial assistance my mom was a single mom for most of my life and and people came alongside of us and so but I have to use my imagination and if I don't use my imagination she just becomes a thing right she's just another problem to be dealt with during the day but if we use our imagination and think through these things we can actually begin to love people we can actually begin to love people who are nothing like us because we start to think what is their life like what do i imagine and you know you might be wrong but i bet you you're you're going to be a lot closer to loving them well by using your imagination than not and the bottom line is this is that in any situation the the way that we love is to to ask yourself if i were them how would i want to be treated and do that right now I could just say lesson over kids treat other people the way you want to be treated that's what you should do now just go out and do it I could do that but then I would also leave you I'm guessing in a bit of despair because the question I would be asking if I were you it's a question I asked myself is if the golden rule is so simple if, it's, if it really boils down to just treat other people the way I wanna be treated, then why doesn't anyone do it? Why is it so difficult? In other words, almost every religion in the world teaches some version of the golden rule. All of them do. Because if people did it, the world would be a different place. I mean, it would just literally be a different. It'd be like heaven on earth. Now, why doesn't anyone do it? And I think the answer is pretty simple. Um, number one, because we're selfish. And number two, I think it's because we're afraid people won't reciprocate. In other words, what if I I try and get myself in your head and think what would you like? How would you like to be treated? How, how would I like to be treated if I were you? And I do that, and I sort of lay down my cards, and I love you like that, and you don't reciprocate, or maybe even worse than that, you scorn it, you treat me like a jerk, and I'm say, so, well, I'm not going to do that again. You see, we're so we don't get when we don't we're not reciprocated. We don't want to love, and frankly, just because we're selfish, we don't do it either. Here's the thing even though every religion teaches some version of the golden rule, Christianity is the only one that holds out hope for actually doing it. Christianity is literally the only religion that holds out any hope of actually accomplishing the golden rule. And why is that? And the answer is because the Christian is a person who has experienced the golden rule. In other words, the, the Christian is one who, who, who has been loved by someone else, according to the principle of the golden rule, that when you begin to think about the, the gospel, Jesus didn't just imagine what it was like to be in your shoes. He didn't just imagine um, what it would be like to be in your place or my place. Jesus came and he literally took your place. Jesus came and he literally took my place. You see how, how, what he's doing there? He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And whoever would have faith in him, whoever would call upon him, would be saved from their sins. They would be justified and be made right with God. If you have trusted Jesus uh, because he has lived out the golden rule on your behalf, he has he treated you the way that he would want to be treated in your shoes, then God is completely and utterly pleased with you right now, right this moment. He rejoices over you, with great shouts of joy, he will never fail you, he will never forsake you, he will never abandon you, he will never kick you out of the house. And if that's true, that solves the problem of reciprocation, right? In other words, we now can love other people and we don't need to worry about whether or not they're gonna love us in return. We don't need to worry about reciprocation. That's why Christianity also doesn't just say love other people, it says love your enemies how do you love your enemies your enemies the only thing they're going to reciprocate with is violence maybe, or or, or harsh words we can love them because god first loved us remember first john says that he says this is love not that that we love god but he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins we love other people because of that as well and so with all the religions that teach the golden rule the other thing we should keep in mind is that while all other religions uh, teach the golden rule, Jesus is actually the incarnation of it. And while all other religions sort of point to the truth and they say, yeah, you need to do that. That's the truth. You you just go that way. Jesus comes along and he says, what I am the truth. You see, Jesus has taken things to a different level altogether. Jesus doesn't put himself out there as a religious teacher. That, that, that's the mistake I think people make with Jesus. That's the mistake people make when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, oh, I just follow the Sermon on the Mount. If you say you follow the Sermon on the Mount, and you're not a Christian, that I don't believe that. That's crazy. Because you either don't believe all the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically says, I am the, the truth. That all the things in the Sermon on the Mount, they culminate in, in me. And in the person of Jesus, God loves us the way that he wants to be loved. Think about that. How does god love us the same way that he wants to be loved exclusively passionately particularly sacrificially if you want to know what god expects of you how he wants to be loved is he loves us that way and so instead of what's interesting is at the end of this the the the, uh, golden rule jesus doesn't just say that's the culmination of the law and the prophets now go and be in peace just go and do this disciples He doesn't say that he immediately follows the golden rule with this talk of narrowness. In fact, what I'm going to call the hope of narrowness. Let's look at that real quickly. Notice what he says right after the golden rule. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction and those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So I think Jesus is trying to remind us here among other things um, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't about being good. It's about being who you are. And so he says right after he finishes the teaching, enter by the narrow gate. Now the word narrow here is interesting. It's the word, it's the same word that's often used for crushing. Like for example, if you step on a bug and it dies, what does the bug die of? In the Greek, the bug dies of narrowness. Right? It's that. It's that skinny. It's it, it, in other words, it, 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 there's no room here. There, there's like you barely fit through. This is what Jesus is saying. And so, if it sounds like here that Jesus is saying that there's only one way to enter the kingdom. There's only one way to enter life. There, this completely and utterly exclusive. If that's what it sounds like to you, you're right. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not prevaricating, he's not pussyfooting around, he's not doing anything. He's basically saying, enter by the narrow gate. Now, why is that important? It's because you don't enter the kingdom by obedience. You enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. And the question is, why, is, and why would I call this hopeful? Why is narrowness hopeful? And the answer is this, because narrowness is, is the way of grace. In other words, you enter the narrow gate, and it is so narrow, you have to enter like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger traveling through time in Terminator movies. Remember that, if you've seen it? Now, if you're under 17, don't watch him, it's an R-rated movie. Um, but basically, remember, he's a Terminator, he travels through time, he can't wear anything. So you'll see, you'll see the electricity buzzing in the air, and suddenly, bam, you know, this huge guy on the ground, completely naked, because he can't take anything with him as he travels. And it's the same way. We can't take anything with us when we enter that gate. And Jesus says, in John, I am the gate. And the reason it's the way of grace is because we don't have to bring our good works. We don't have to bring our performance. We don't have to bring any of that stuff. We simply have to bring who we are. And Jesus accepts us that way. And so the question is this, I think, Are you entering the kingdom of God on the basis of your good works? Are you trying to do that? Or have you decided you're going to enter on the basis of Christ's good works? Are you going to try and enter by following your own path? Or are you going to try by following the path of Christ? In other words, by entering through him, by trusting in him, by faith. If you're watching this, uh, maybe you don't go to my church all the time. You don't hear this every week. Let me lay it out for you. Have you trusted Jesus for the salvation of your soul? Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, please do that today. If you have not, when this is done in a few minutes, stop and ask Jesus, say, Jesus, I am a sinner desperately in need of your grace. Would you please save me from my sins? I trust in your work on the cross and I want to follow you from now on. That's all it takes. Now, of course, what's interesting is I'm telling you that's all it takes and it's easy. And Jesus says, it's hard. So which one of us is right? What do you think I'm gonna say, (laughs) right? It's easy on one hand because you don't have to bring anything. Why is it hard? Notice Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. The The gate is narrow And the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Why would Jesus say it's hard when I'm saying it's all about grace? And I think I'm gonna close with this that Flannery O'Connor gives us the answer. Flannery O'Connor in a brilliant sentence tells us this. She says that all human nature vigorously opposes grace because grace changes and change is painful. Let me read that one more time. She says, all human nature vigorously opposes grace because grace changes us and change is painful. That's why it's hard, I think. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I just pray now that you would, um, you would come and you would help us as a church, you would help anyone who's watching this, frankly, to, to love well. And I pray that you would help us to love well because we have been loved well. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen. At this point in the service, in church, typically, we would sing the doxology, I'd say, please stand for the doxology, and everyone would sing, and they would start belting it out, and as you belt it out, the ushers would come, and they would start beginning to take an offertory. Obviously, we can't do that, but you can do it digitally. If you're a member of New Hope, or you're interested in giving uh, to our ministry, you can find the link below. And what I'm gonna to do today is I'm gonna finish with a profession of faith. And, and you have probably heard me say on one hand, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of my favorite catechisms from the Reformation. But one, I think one of the most important from the Reformation is the one we use the least is the Westminster Larger Catechism. In other words, oftentimes we read the Westminster Confession of Faith and we memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but the Westminster Larger Catechism is like this huge feast of doctrine and theology. So this, this morning, I wanted to close by professing our faith by using the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 79. And so in church, how it would work is I would read the, the question and then I'd say answer, and you would answer with me. If you wanna do that, you can do that. And so I say the question is this, question, since true believers are imperfect, are tempted and commit sin, Can they fall out of their state of grace? Good question. Answer because of God's unchangeable love, he has decreed and made a covenant with believers that they will persevere, that they are inseparably united to Christ who continually intercedes for them and that spirit and seed of God abide in them. Consequently, they can never completely or finally fall out of their state of grace because the power of God preserves their salvation through faith. Amen. In other words, sometimes you might let go of God, but he's not going to let go of you. That sometimes you might want to leave the house, but he's not going to kick you out of the house. Think about that. Let me send you with this blessing, saying the Lord your God is with you, the Lord your God bless you and keep you, and the Lord your God make his face shine upon you. Amen and amen. Have a good week.